Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Slightly better response than the first service. Good morning. Awesome. Yeah, it's good, it's good to be together. Uh, it's good to gather each week uh, in a, on a Sunday in a place like this to be able to worship together. It's good to see half faces, uh, hopefully soon full faces, um, and just recognize that what a blessing God has given us to be in fellowship with one another. Awesome to have a baby dedication. Congratulations. Thank you to Chet and Wes for leading us and guiding us into this time. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Cal. I'm part of the staff team here, and it's a real joy to be able to open God's Word this morning. Oh, quickly, welcome to those who are watching us online as well. Um, we have a, a lot to get through this morning, and so I don't know if you have seatbelts on those chairs, but if you do, um, you know, buckle them up, and, and we're going to roll here. So um, we're, we're nearing the end of our 2022 kickoff uh, sermon series, which we've titled The Invisible War. Now, let me just remind us that whether we know it or not, Each of us is involved in a cosmic battle that rages not in the physical world, like the conflicts and the wars that we're maybe most familiar with, the ones that make the news, but a war that's taking place in the spiritual realm, the unseen world. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, while the primary protagonists of this spiritual war, this invisible war, are Almighty God Himself and Satan, all of creation, all of creation, and especially we as human beings, human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings who have been created in the very image of God, We're in this battle. Each and every one of you here, each and every person who is watching online or recorded later on, we're part of this battle, no matter where you might be in your spiritual journey. I see, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or if you're not sure where you're at in your relationship with Jesus and with God, then Satan attacks us. He involves us in this spiritual war through lies and deceit and half-truths. He lies and he deceives us as to the the nature and the character of God. He lies and deceives us, gives us half-truths about the joy and the purpose and hope of living fully in a relationship with him. He lies and and deceives us and gives us half-truths as as to the necessity of Christ's work on the cross in reconciling our relationship to God. And Satan's desire is that you would never make a commitment to follow him. And you will continue to live for yourself, apart from God. Not just for the here and now, but for all of eternity. Now for those who are here this morning, those of you who are watching online, who are Christ followers, who have made that decision and have received by faith the gift of God through Christ, then Satan's attack it doesn't determine our eternal destiny. So the focus of attack then is to rob us of the joy and the abundance of living fully in Christ. 
He longs to make Christ's followers ineffective in our witness and be able to share the love of God with others who are around us. Satan captures us and gets us in the bondage of lies about who we are. He tells us we're worthless, that we're ineffective. We can't do anything meaningful for him or the lives of others, that we can't make a difference for eternity in the lives of those around us who don't know him. He longs for us to continue living in our selfish ways, never committing ourselves fully to the ways of God and the mission of God. And he seeks to trap us in, in these cycles of sin in which we feel we can never break out of, never be free from. See, Satan and, and God are at odds, and we're right in the middle of this battle. So far in this series, we've looked at the reality of this battle. We've taken a couple messages to examine our enemy, Satan. We've looked at his character and his nature, his purpose, and, and some of the tactics and strategies he uses. And Pastor Layton last week looked at the question of, well, if Satan is real, and if his sole purpose is to work against the, the, the purposes of God, why does God even allow him to exist? And if you haven't kind of caught up with our series, may I encourage you to do so. It's all online on our YouTube channel. Um, and, and those are important messages to, to set us up, not just for today, but even as we move forward. But this morning, we're going to shift our focus a little bit away from, from a primary focus on Satan and understanding Satan to understanding who we are and who God is. Even though this battle is not in the physical world, even though Satan is an intimidating and certainly a powerful enemy, and even though there are times and perhaps many times in which we feel helpless and defeated and hopeless, God has actually given us everything we need to fight this spiritual war. And that's the truth I want us to resonate with throughout this message and even as we go from here. That's the premise I want each and every one, each and every one of us, excuse me, to have full confidence in this morning. That we indeed have everything we need to fight this spiritual battle. God has given us all we need to fight the attack of Satan and more than that, to actually take the offensive against him and to live in the joy of victory and freedom. Chet led us in an older song from 85. I don't remember the year, but if you watched the movie The Untouchables, which I believe was in the 80s, um, you might remember the line, uh, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And that's what we want to examine this morning. So let me begin this morning's message by reading our key passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. Uh, again, the words are on the screen. There's something, though, about having a Bible in your hands. Uh, you can flip the pages that I think is, it just makes uh, the, his word, you know, a little more it's tactile for sure. And I, I enjoy having my Bible in front of me. Um, but yeah, so let, let's just follow along as I read. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. And here Paul writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as, as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now we know that the weapons in a physical war include things like maybe even our fist if we're in a, in a conflict with somebody else, you know, face to face. 
or, or knives or, or guns or, or in some kind of in more larger battles and, and wars between countries, uh, fighter jets and missiles, tanks and troops and so on. But just as we read from Ephesians, Paul teaches us that our battle is, is not a physical one. So we don't fight with physical weapons. Rather, we need to engage our enemy with spiritual weapons. But then that raises kind of the obvious question. Well, what are these spiritual weapons? And how do we use them? How can I live in the freedom and victory that we continue to talk about? So let's, let's take a look. Now, I'm not going to try to list and explain every spiritual weapon we've been given. Uh, that, that would just take too long. But for this morning, I've grouped these weapons into two kind of two major categories. But before that, before we examine those, there's a fundamental and a foundational question I think we all need to answer. And the question is this, and I don't know if I need to apologize, but I'll just say, I'll express it in a sports context, okay? Easy for me to identify with, but here, I'll ask it in a sports way. The question is this, whose team are you on? Whose team are you on? We've mentioned it several times before that while we fight the battles each and every day, in the end, the war is won by God. In the end, God wins. And here's the thing. You can actually choose which side or which team you want to be on. It's entirely your choice as to whether or not you remain on Satan's side and you live for self and your own priorities and your own purposes and never commit your life to Christ. Or you can join God's side by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and following him in his ways and joining him in his mission. Back in the early 2000s, one of my favorite hockey players was a gentleman by the name of Marion Hossa. He was drafted by the Ottawa Senators in 1997. He played with them for six years. I never won a cup with Ottawa, but the peak of his career came in 2010 when he won the Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks. Now, while he achieved his ultimate hockey goal in life, the pathway there was actually very interesting. I'm not sure if you're aware of some of the backstory between of how he got to that point. In 2008, uh, 2007, I think, Ottawa traded him to the Atlanta Thrashers for Danny Heatley. In 2008, while he was playing for the Atlanta Thrashers, um, the Thrashers were very much out of the playoffs. They had a below 500 um, record uh, they weren't going anywhere, and so they were selling assets in order to, uh, sorry, selling players in order to gain assets. Marion Hosa was traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were genuine cup contenders. And that year, the Penguins made the Stanley Cup final. Unfortunately for Hosa, the, the Penguins, the team that he was a part of then, lost the cup finals to the Detroit Red Wings. In that offseason, the Penguins offered uh, Marion Hosa a significant contract extension to stay with them. But at that time in his career, money was not the major factor in determining where he wanted to play. He wanted to win a cup. And so he assessed all the teams, all the contenders, and tried to make a decision where, where could he go, and he was a well-sought-after free agent, where could he go that would give him the best chance to win a cup? And he chose the team that the Penguins had just lost to, the Detroit Red Wings, in the year before. So he signed a one-year contract with the Detroit Red Wings. He felt that the Red Wings would offer him a better chance to win the cup than the Penguins or any other team in the league would. 
Well, that year, the Detroit Red Wings had a successful season. They went all the way again to the Stanley Cup final where they met, you guessed it, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the team that he had just left. And to Hosea's heartbreak, the Red Wings lost to the Penguins and the cup slipped out of his grasp once again. The next year, Hosea signed a multi-year deal with the Chicago Blackhawks. And that year, he won his first Stanley Cup. In the record books, Marion Hosea is the only player in NHL history to ever make the Stanley Cup final three different times with three different teams. In Hosea's case, he tried to pick the team that he felt would have the best chance of winning the cup. I mean, but it's an educated guess at best, right? We never know who's going to win the cup. You know, there's seven Canadian teams. And if I were to ask you to guess, to pick who you think would be the most likely to bring the Stanley Cup back to Canada, who would you say it would be? I, I put some of the logos up. So you pick from these logos which one you think would be most likely to bring the Stanley Cup back to Canada. You choose. I'm not going to force you to choose anything in particular. Uh, but, but imagine if you were an athlete on a team sport and whatever level, whatever level you choose, and you, want, and you knew the team that was going to win the championship. Would you not want to be a part of that team? I, I know I certainly would. Spiritually, Spiritually, in this invisible war, I can tell you with 100% certainty who is going to win this war. Now, don't take my word for it. Dig into Scripture yourself. I can tell you with 100% certainty that God is going to win this war. And God invites you and, God, and it's each of us to join him to be on the winning team. Listen as I read Revelation 20, verse 9. They, referring to Satan and his demons, marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I can tell you with 100% certainty that in the end, God is going to win. And he invites each and every person to join him on his team. Not just because it's on the winning team, but that, because that's the place in which we can experience victory. Not just one day, but right now in our lives today. So the first question that I must ask you and you must answer before we can move on is this. Whose team are you on? It's your choice. You can choose to follow Jesus and join Team God or you can t continue to live your life for your own self and do your own things and live your own way and stay on Team Satan. Now understand, I'm not trying to be flippant or disrespectful by using these uh, sports analogies or sports parallels, but the truth is you're on one side or you're on the other. And you need to choose and you get to choose. Last week, Pastor Layton was sharing us a story of a young man who, was, who had been struggling for much of his adult life with addictions. And the situation got to the point where Pastor Layton asked this person if he had ever committed his life to Christ, if he had ever asked God into his heart, or asked, uh, asked God to take control of his life. Because if he hadn't, 
The battle, and in his case it was against addiction, the battle he was fighting was being fought with his own strength, with his own wisdom, with his own willpower. He was trying to will himself out of the the situation he had found himself in. And to that point, it had been a losing battle. Yes, there may have been an odd victory here or there for a, a little bit of time, but overall he knew he was losing and he was losing badly. And I loved how Pastor Layton expressed it. He said it something like this. He said, you know, without God in our lives, the battle is ours to fight. But when we invite God into our lives, the battle becomes his to fight. If you're here today or if you're listening online right now, and you've never had a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you've never admitted and confessed that you by nature are a sinner, that you're apart from God, if you've never received the gift of Jesus and accepted by faith his work on the cross, which takes the punishment and pays the penalty for our sins, and if you've never committed your life to following him, can I invite you to do so? Can I encourage you to do so? I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. But some, of you, but some of you listening right now know where you're at. And you know you've been living in the struggle. You know you've been fighting the battle. In fact, you know you fought this battle for too long under your own strength and under your own ways, trying your best, and you're losing the fight. And you're tired. Tired of this constant cycle of wanting to do better and doing some things, but then failing and then feeling guilty and shameful and then trying to do it again. And this cycle keeps repeating itself over and over and over again and you feel trapped and you can't get out of it. Let me remind you, there is freedom in Jesus Christ. You don't have to live like that. And you can experience that freedom, but first you need to make a commitment to follow Christ and commit your life to him. And it's your choice. You know, I think it would be appropriate just to pause for a moment um, and give you a minute or so or a minute or two. And if God has been speaking to you about where you're at in your relationship with him, maybe you need to, to respond to that voice. We don't want to leave that voice quiet. You need to respond to it. If you're at home and God has been speaking to you over these past weeks or months or even longer, and, and this is something that you want to move forward, and I, I think I need to give you a chance to respond. Sound booth guys are going to play just a, a quiet song for just a minute or so. And, and, and can I just encourage you to just pray or, you know, don't make a, you don't have to make a big show out of it or whatever, but ask God to speak to you and, and, and listen for his voice. And, and if God is prompting you to perhaps make a first-time decision for him, then go ahead and do that and, and make that decision. If God, if you've been a, a Christ follower, but you've been living in these patterns of sin and you're not sure why you can't get out of them, or you know that you need to turn your life around and begin walking back toward God in his ways, and maybe God is just speaking to you about that, then, then respond to that. And later on at the end of the service when we have our ministry prayer time, can I just challenge you to share that with somebody else and maybe someone who you're sitting with beside and say, you know what, can you just pray for me? I need to do some business with God today. Or you can come to the front and, and there'll be people up here later, like I said, at the end of the service. And we'd be happy to pray with you. If you're online and you don't have someone to pray with, you can go to our website. And under Next Steps, I think it is a button, there's uh, ways that we, you, we could help you, guide you in that initial 
first steps about what it means to walk with Christ. But if God is speaking to you in this way, can I encourage you not to, to suppress that voice, is what I'm saying, and, and just allow God to speak. So while the music plays quietly, just for a minute or so, um, maybe you need to do some business with God. Let's just take a, a minute or so to do that. Let's just pray. Father, if there are those listening online or here in person in which your spirit has been prodding and your voice longs to be heard, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say and that we wouldn't ignore your voice as it leads us towards you. Amen. And if you feel that God has been speaking to you about something, and maybe this is a part of the journey that you've been on, can I again encourage and challenge you not to keep that inside? There's something powerful about sharing that with somebody who will support you, encourage you, guide you along the way. Um, and, you know, we as a church, we're a family together. And, and if you've made a decision or, you, you know, you need to make a redecision, whatever it might be, share that and, and let us celebrate that joy. And then, and then we can be together and walk this journey together. So the first thing I just simply ask is, is whose team are you on? Um, and you, you get to choose. You get to choose. Everything as we move forward uh, is really, you know, ways in which we can now learn to turn the battle over to God. There are things that we need to do. God never forces his way into any, anyone's life. And there are things that we can do then to, to really begin allowing God to fight the battle for us instead of trying to do it on our own. So the first category of weapons that I believe God has given us, I've titled the category, the things we have, what we have. God has given us, as his people, various weapons by which we can fight and, and fight victoriously this battle that we're engaged with. Our passage again from 2 Corinthians teaches us that the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. So while it's obvious we don't fight this battle with our fists or with guns or tanks or missiles and so on, uh, there are some things that I might list here that you may have not yet never considered to be spiritual weapons in the arsenal that God has given us. Weapons of war. Now again, there's too much to go into detail here, so let me just list a few things that we have in Christ that are spiritual weapons that we can use in this battle, uh, this spiritual battle, and just make a couple of comments. First, the first weapon we have is the Word of God. The Word of God reveals to us truth. 
the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are, the truth of what is good and what is righteous and what is holy, the truth of how to live a truly abundant, joy-filled, victorious life, as we've talked about the truth of who Satan is and so on. And this must be the foundation of our lives. And we need to build on this foundation. You see, too often we build on the foundation of our own personal thoughts or wisdom or our own interpretation of what the Bible says. We build our lives on the foundation of what other people say about us and we adjust our lives to meet others' expectations. We build, our foundation of our li- we build the foundation of our lives on our own experiences or feelings, sometimes even what the culture believes to be right. Whereas we need to build the foundation on the truth of God's Word. Second, we have the Spirit of God. Those in Christ have been given the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that lives in our lives and provides for us power and assurance, provides for us the revelation of truth. It gives, he gives us strength and courage and so much more in this battle. Ephesians 1 verses 13 to 14 tells us, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, when you make a decision to follow Jesus and to accept his gift of salvation and to commit your, your life to following his ways, God gives us his Holy Spirit, which indwells each and every one of us. And the Holy Spirit kind of has multiple roles, but two of the key ones are, one of them is simply to seal us, to remind us that we are God's and no one can take that away. But secondly, the Holy Spirit is there to give us power and wisdom and guidance in our daily life. And if you're a Christ follower, yes, you have the Holy Spirit as a seal, but too often Christians and believers don't access the power on a daily basis that is provided to us through the Holy Spirit. We need to learn how to access the power that's been given to us. Stop fighting on our own. Third, we have the armor of God. Now, we could do several sermon series probably on this, but we don't have time. But let me just read from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18 from the message. That about wraps it up. God is strong, and he wants you to be strong. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so that you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. This battle is for keeps. It's a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. So be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon that God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation, they're more than words. Learn to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's Word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and pray long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. So we need to understand what it means to put on the armor of God and to use the tools and weapons that he's given us. Truth and righteousness, peace, faith, and so on. 
And the Ephesian passage leads us to our fourth weapon, and that's the weapon of prayer. I think many of us understand in our heads that prayer is a powerful weapon in this spiritual battle, but too often the practice mean, our practice doesn't always reveal that, that same head knowledge. Our practice of prayer is often limited to asking God for things. And while it's not wrong and it's necessary that we pray and ask God for healing, for provision, for reconciliation, all that, if we limit it to God, we never fully experience the power that is available to us in prayer. And often we use prayer as our last resort instead of our first response. Our expectation of prayer, or we come into prayer with the mindset of, well, I'm going to pray so I can get God to do what I want. Instead of coming into prayer saying, God, what would you have me do? How can I draw nearer to you, closer to you, grow in intimacy with you? And prayer is a necessary and essential weapon in our spiritual battle. Because in prayer, we bring the battle before the Lord, and we can access his mighty power. Fifth, we have the weapon of confession. Now this weapon, and, and the next one I'm going to mention here, you might not consider to be weapons, but, but hear me out, hear me out. Confessing or confession is, is simply recognizing and admitting that what we've done or what we're caught up in is against God's character and against God's ways. It's sinful. See, often we see confession as an act of shame. We're embarrassed to confess those things inside us that we think others would be embarrassed to hear about us. When actually confession is an incredibly powerful and freeing gift of God. You see, Satan longs to keep sin in the darkness and out of the light. Because in the darkness is when it can do its most damage. It's most insidious when we keep it hidden in our hearts and we don't bring it out. We don't share it with others. We don't confess it to others. We don't confess it to God first, of course. However, confession, when done genuinely from the heart, brings that which is hidden into view and it removes guilt and shame and it cleanses us before God. It breaks down our pride. It breaks down our selfishness. It opens the door for forgiveness and it restores relationship. Many of you may be familiar with this promise in 1 John, but as I read it over again this week several times, it just, like, it just hit me so hard that this is a promise Satan loves to work against. 1 John 1, I'll start at verse 8 actually, but verse 8 and 9 where it says, if we claim that we're free of sin, we're, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, if we come clean about them, God won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins. He'll purge us of all wrongdoing. Confession is a powerful, powerful weapon in our spiritual battle. And six, this is the last one I'll mention in this category of what we have we have the weapon of repentance. And this is the companion piece to confession. It's the two sides of the same coin. Confession simply means we turn from one direction and we start moving in another direction. And true confession must be followed by repentance. You see, confession, uh, confession is we come forward and when we're walking one way away from God 
And we say, you know what, this is wrong. I know this is wrong. I need to confess. I agree with God that what I'm doing is wrong, but we can't just stand here. We need to turn around and, and start walking our lives back the other way, walking toward the things of God and what's pleasing to him. Metanoia, I didn't mention the, uh, the Greek word for, for confession. You probably saw it up there. But anyway, metanoia, it simply means turn around. And that's why confession and repentance are incredibly powerful weapons against the tactics of Satan. See, Satan loves to fill us with guilt and shame. He would have us believe that if we share something, it's going to be embarrassing or it's such a deep, dark secret, people are going to be uh, uh, frightened of you or, or scared of you if you confess something that, that maybe is in your heart or something that you, you're, you're done or something that has locked you in. We worry more about our reputation or our appearance. And Satan makes us believe that keeping sin in the darkness is what's best. But God already knows God already knows what's in our heart. We're not telling him anything new. I heard an expression once, that, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? You're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. But he wants us to bring it forward. And you know what he wants us to do as a family? He wants us to create an environment here where when we confess and when we repent, we don't stand in judgment or criticism or embarrassment, but we actually love and support one another that we can come to those brothers and sisters who are sitting beside us and say, you know what, this is what's happening in my heart. I'm struggling. I need prayer. And, and we're not sitting there going, whoa, that's, no, I don't want to hear about that. Or that's way out there for me. No. And the church, big C church and small C church, local, needs to be a place where we can confess and we can repent. When we get it out and into the light, then that's where we can deal with it. And that's when we can experience the freedom that God desires for us to live in. These are powerful, powerful weapons if we learn to implement them in our lives and use them in our lives. The second general category of weapons we have in this invisible war, I gotta, gotta move, put it in gear here. Let's go, Cal. Um, I've put under the title of, of who we are. So the first category is what we have, what God has given to us. The second category is who we are. And I would argue or share, in, from my opinion, that if we understand truly who we are, this is arguably the most powerful weapon we have in our battle against Satan. Let me introduce you, a, a, a teach you a Hebrew phrase that I think is worth knowing. Say, well, it's pronounced this way. I forgot how it's said now. No, yeah, yeah, okay. B'tselem, B'tselem Elohim. I should have written it out here. B'tselem Elohim, say it with me. B'tselem Elohim, one more time. B'tselem Elohim, if you're at home, say it as well too. Does anyone want to guess what that means? Any guesses? Hebrew scholars? Okay, one of those words you might recognize, right? The second one, Elohim. B'tselem Elohim simply means in the image of God. B'tselem Elohim, in the image of God. Each and every person here. If you're a Christ follower, if you are searching if you've rejected all things of faith, doesn't matter. Each and every human being is created in the image of God. In the image of God the Father, in the image of God the Son, or Jesus, and in the image of God the Holy Spirit. And when we recognize that that is fundamentally our identity, it gives us two powerful weapons by which we fight the enemy. And the first one I already mentioned, that 
understanding that we are created in the image of God is a foundation and the basis for our identity, who we are. Now, according to psychologist David Benner, identity, in a very simplified way, is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. Our identities are often formed by a combination of things, including our parents and how they treated us or disciplined us or interacted with us. It's formed by peers and what they think about us. It's formed by other relationships. It's formed by our physical traits, whether they match up with what society values or what the Hollywood scene values. It's, it's defined sometimes by our jobs and our careers. It's defined by our successes and failures. And often it's, it's, it's defined by what other people say about us. However, we cannot allow our identity to be defined and shaped and founded by external forces like the ones I just mentioned. Rather, it needs to be defined by the one who created us, God himself. David Bender continues to say, an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to our mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Think about that. If when people asked who you were, and you responded, I am God's creation, deeply loved by God, created in his image, and how that would shape what you thought of yourself and ultimately how you lived your life. You see, unfortunately too often our identity is defined by what we do or what we look like and our value is derived from what we can contribute to others or what we achieve. It's, it's what I call the, the do-to-be trap, which is what I do now defines who I am. And so if I don't do much, then obviously I'm not worth much. Or if others don't like what I do or how I look or how I dress, then I'm obviously not of much value. But God says, no, your identity is defined by who I say you are, and from that comes what you do. When I was in high school, I was blessed and fortunate to be part of a youth group and a youth ministry at a church called the Met, uh, Metropolitan Bible Church in Ottawa. And like any large youth group, there were teens that were there for many different reasons, had many motivations to be there. I remember a group of young people from another church started to attend the Met because apparently the Met had the cutest girls in, in high school. And that wasn't me, by the way. At least I would never admit that out loud here. When I first started attending, I, I, was, like, I was a new kid. And I found, I found myself, like in many situations like that, having a hard time being accepted by others and making friends. Um, you know, I'd go and I'd maybe meet a person or two here, but I, I, at first I didn't really connect. Well, one summer, and uh, during the summers, our, our youth group program would often, like we would meet in people's homes. And uh, often we would find a home with a field nearby and the guys or, and the girls, I shouldn't, you know, differentiate. But the group would go out and we'd play a game of football before Bible study on a Wednesday night. And I went out to one of these one time and all of a sudden I discovered that I, I could catch a football. And I could catch a football pretty good. I don't just mean like stand there and catch football. Like I, I had, I, not, not bragging or nothing, but I had pretty good hands. Anyone have a ball here to throw it? Okay, well, save that demonstration for another time. But, but anyway, I, had, I started to develop this mindset, you know, so if I can touch it, I should be able to catch it. 
And so we play football, and, 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 and there was a group of guys who loved to play football, were really immersed in it, and they would, when we divide up teams, I, I felt wanted. I felt needed on a team because I could contribute. And so they would throw me a ball, and I'd catch it or whatever else, and we'd have a grand old time. But I began to define myself and my acceptance with this group by something I could do. I could catch a ball. And that was great until one summer. The summer that I understood what it meant to follow Jesus and I committed my life to him. Because that group of friends who generally accepted me because I could catch a football decided that they wanted to get into some other things during a youth canoe trip. And this group had brought over a whole whack of booze and had camped away from the rest of the group and wanted to party. And they said, Cal, come on, come with us. You're with us. And there was nothing self-righteous about it, but something in my heart felt that that wasn't right. So I didn't go. I didn't join them. I stayed with the main group, with whom I was also making some other friends. Well, very quickly, I became on the outs with that group. I could still catch footballs, but I wasn't accepted by them anymore. Fortunately, again, by God's grace, there was another part of the group that had begun to get to know me and accepted me truly for who I was, not what I could do. And I became close friends with that group. And as we grew past high school and into our college years, this group encouraged me in my spiritual walk. They held me accountable. We journeyed life together. They helped me in times of tough choices and difficult circumstance. And even today, I consider several from that group among my closest friends. You see, God accepts us and loves us for who we are. That we are a part of his creation and the pinnacle of his creation, created in his image. And he longs that what we do would flow out of understanding the fullness of who we are, not the other way around. God longs to transform us into the image of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And you know, sometimes when we hear that as Christians, we think, oh, be transformed into, into the likeness of Jesus. Well, Jesus was sinless. He reacted properly and everything. He never lost his temper. I could never do that. And, and we see the, the likeness of Jesus as a bar that we can never attain. And so when we live with that mentality, that's the I have to do mentality, it creates guilt and shame in us. and says, I'll never get to that point, and you live in defeat. But when I think about what it means when Jesus says, I want to transform you into the likeness of Jesus, what I think of is that this is God's desire to transform transform us into what we get to be. That is not on our own strength and our own ability that we're trying to make an achievement. It's as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, as we learn to live in the freedom and the power of our identity in Jesus, that, that we get to become like Jesus. And it may not happen on earth until we die or until Christ returns, but one day we will be like his son. And God will look upon us and he'll be pleased with what he's created. B'Tselem Elohim defines our identity. It's who we are. And there's freedom when we understand who we are. Second, B'Tselem Elohim gives us authority. I really got to move here. Sorry, guys. When God created us, he gave us authority to rule the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Why? So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky. He goes on to basically all of creation. He gave us authority. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they turned that authority over to the prince of this world, Satan. However, when Jesus came to earth, 
when he took on the form of man and fullness of God and the fullness of man, he, he took that authority back. And he first gave it to his 12 disciples. In Matthew 10, verse 1, we read, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness, to fight the spiritual war. And then when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt his authority over Satan, his authority over demons, his authority over death, disease. And just before Jesus returned to heaven, he turned that authority back to us, his disciples. Matthew 28, we read, Then Jesus came to them and came to us, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm giving you this authority, so therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so as image bearers of Christ, we have access to this incredible authority. Now this authority is important because it is the key to healing. It is the key to defeating the enemy in our lives. Authority means we have the right and the permission to use the weapons that we've been given. Think about a police officer, at least in our Canadian context. I was thinking about this in, in between services. I think the American context works as well. But police officers carry a gun, right, and a badge. They carry a badge and a gun and a few other, you know, doodads. But fundamentally, a gun and a badge. We're not allowed to carry a gun in Canada. Um, we're, we don't have a badge that identifies us as anything. So when a police officer uses their gun, it's not as an individual who chooses to use a weapon. It's because he's been given the authority by the government and by the, you know, the, the, however the, it all breaks down. But he's been given authority that he wears on, on his uh, chest as, a, as the badge to use the weapons that he's been given. We don't have that authority as, as citizens. But we do carry a badge in this spiritual war. Those in Christ carry the badge of the Holy Spirit. And because we have authority, we can use the authority, the same authority that in Jesus' day he gave to his disciples to cast out demons and other evil spirits and to rebuke and confront the dark forces in our lives. B'Tselem Elohim means we have authority. So let me finish and conclude just with some quick thoughts. God has given us everything we need, everything and more, to not only fight the enemy and defend ourselves, but to actually gain victory and win, uh, win and live in freedom. For those who are in Christ, God has given us the weapons both in who, what we have and in who we are. And when we know who we are, when we use what we've been given, we can live and experience the victory and freedom that God desires for each and every one of us. As we mentioned, next weekend we'll be having our break-free seminar on Friday night and then I think 9 to 5-ish on, on Saturday. And at that time we're going to go a little bit deeper into some of the teachings that we've done over the past several weeks. But most importantly, and this is why I want to encourage and challenge you to come, is because we're going to walk through a process by which we will ask God to speak to us and ask God to reveal those things in our lives that Satan has a hold of us on. Those cycles of sin and negativity, those negative thoughts, those patterns of behavior that we feel are so difficult to break. And we're praying and we're trusting that as we do that, we can begin a journey toward freedom. 
that we can begin a journey towards victory as we understand the power and identity of Jesus in our lives. And I'll be up front. There likely will be times where you're going to be uncomfortable. Because Satan wants that uncomfortableness to hold you back from doing what needs to be done, from doing business with God. There will be times where you're going, I don't know if I'm comfortable doing this. I don't even know if I want to do this. But I believe that if we can step beyond that and take a chance, take a risk, God will begin a process in us that will be life-changing. If we come prepared to engage, to listen to God, and to allow God to do his work in us, I think we are going to have not just a fantastic weekend, a transformative weekend. Uh, Worship team, come on up. You're probably chomping at the bit here. This morning, we also have the opportunity to celebrate communion together, and I, I think it's an entirely appropriate response to our message today. Because it is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and... Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you, and thanks for listening.